Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. During Lent at Maranatha, we've been learning to pray aright, going through the seven different parts of the Lord's Prayer. And little did we know when we started Lent how the Lord was going to use some world events to teach us all the more about prayer. We pray in this seventh petition, deliver us from evil. And uppermost, probably in most of our minds, as we think of that, is deliverance from this coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, that's causing sickness and death and economic crisis all over the world these days. Praying for deliverance is what we do when we know that we're up against something that's bigger and more powerful than ourselves. And probably many of us uh, have often thought we can handle most things that come at us in our life pretty much on our own, maybe with a little help from our family or friends. Um, But COVID-19 has made us all feel pretty helpless. And we cry out to God for deliverance from it. And certainly I think that we should pray for that. But there's much more that we need deliverance from, and we're going to see that as we review this last petition of the Lord's Prayer. Some Bible translations of Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, and some versions of the Catechism word this part of the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from the evil one. And the Greek language really allows for either translation, and so in light of the rest of Scripture, I think it certainly fits for us to understand it in this way. The Bible talks about the evil one, talks about Satan, the devil, the great accuser and deceiver, the the father of lies, and describes him as a real personality that is out to destroy both the body and the soul. And though according to Barna Research Group, 60% of Americans do not believe Satan to be a living being, yet Jesus spoke much about him as a very real being and and as the source behind all evil. And so what are the evil one's goals? Let me sum them up in this way. (coughs) Excuse me. To get us to not trust God in his word would be the first goal, and then to get us to sin. Then to get us to live in unrepentant sin. And then to keep us living in unrepentant sin until we die and thus to achieve his end goal of having our body and our soul cast into hell along with him for eternity. Now with these goals of Satan in your mind, I take you to Luther's Catechism, and in the seventh petition it says, deliver us from the evil one, and then we have the explanation. What does this mean? We pray in this petition, as in a summary, that our Heavenly Father would deliver us from the evil one, whether he affects body or soul, property or reputation. And that last, when the hour of death will come, he would grant us a blessed end and graciously take us from this world of sorrow to himself in heaven. So I ask you tonight, according to Luther's explanation, just what does the evil one affect? And how does he do so? Well, he affects our body. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, when Satan got them to 
not trust God and, and to disobey his word, mankind has had to live then with the results of that fall. And that includes sickness and pain and suffering and death, all brought to us um, by Satan and the great deceiver. Uh, our soul is also affected. Um, and he he uh, affects our soul by destroying our willpower and, and perverting and blinding our minds and hardening our consciences and enticing us to follow after other gods that, and leading us thus astray with, with an end goal then of keeping us far away from God for this life and for eternity. He affects also our property uh, through thefts and accidents and floods and fires and wars and job losses and inflation and so on with the goal of getting us then to curse God rather than to trust him when calamity hits. And he affects our reputation by luring us into open sin and thus destroying our Christian witness or by spreading lies about us that can destroy our reputation and, and cause friends in to pull away from us or cripple our earning power and, and lead us to despair. And so what do we pray that God would do? We pray that he would deliver us from the evil one. Are, are we then expecting God to answer that prayer by taking away all sickness and suffering and death and removing all the temptations, keeping us from all manner of property loss, blessing us with unlimited wealth and keeping anyone from ever saying anything negative about us? Well, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? But don't hold your breath. No, we're told in John chapter 16, verse 33, these words of Jesus. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. God is certainly able to deliver us from any trial or hardship here and now. And many times in our lives, we, we recognize that he has done so. And we can probably all think of times he has spared us, maybe even spared our very life, or, or healed us, and so on. But God has chosen to delay complete deliverance. And the last part of Luther's explanation reminds us of what we ultimately desire God to do for us. And there it said, in that last when the hour of death will come, he will grant us a blessed end and graciously take us from this world of sorrow to himself in heaven. So the complete deliverance that we pray for involves a blessed end. Now as I think of that, um, what I'd like to picture for myself would be that I'd live out maybe 90 plus years healthy and actively serving the Lord. And, and that as my body then begins to at last wear out, one night I just go to sleep and wake up in heaven. Or that maybe my, my family would be gathered around my bedside singing hymns together as I drew my last breath and then slipped into the presence of Jesus. That, in my mind, would be a blessed end. But we're not really promised even that, are we? Some Christians encounter much sickness and pain and even torture as they draw their last breath. The bottom line is this. A blessed end is one where we die trusting in our Savior Jesus Christ and we are then taken from this world of sorrow to himself in heaven. Before we look a little more at that complete deliverance that Jesus offers us, I want to glance back at something very interesting, an interesting example from the Old Testament, and that's the, the man named Job. Job was a man who lived his life uprightly, fearing God and turning away from evil. He, he was greatly 
blessed by God with a large family and significant wealth. And it was kind of like there was this hedge of protection around him and his. And both Almighty God and Satan, the evil one, were quite aware of that. And, and Satan claimed that, that Job followed God really only because of how much God blessed him. And that if those blessings were then taken away, Job would curse God. And what we see after that is, is that God gave Satan permission to bring all sorts of calamities upon Job. And so Satan orchestrated things like enemy tribes came and attacked and, and they killed his servants and they stole all of his donkeys and oxen. And, and besides that, lightning struck his sheep shed and, and burned up his sheep and the sheep herders. And, and a windstorm came along and collapsed his oldest son's house with all of Job's other children in the house, and they all died. And then a few days later, Job himself was afflicted with boils all over his body. And still, Job did not curse God. Instead, he said, Shall we indeed not accept good from God? And, and, and then not, or shall we indeed accept good from God and then not accept adversity? And, and so in the middle or in the explanation here of Job, we see this, that, that Satan was behind really all of this awful stuff, but God allowed him to cause those calamities to fall on Job. And so it seems we can conclude some things then. Evil comes upon people from Satan, but only with God's permission. And God sets limits to what Satan can do, and and God uses even such calamities for his purposes. Now, I don't know who we should blame for this current plague that's come upon the world. Its country of origin? Adam and Eve? The politicians? Or Satan? Or God? Probably in some respects we would have to say all of the above. But we do know this. We do know that Satan would seek to use this situation to deceive people and turn them away from God, their creator, and get, and get nations and government leaders to blame each other. And, and he would also seek to get people to look to government to come up with a way to save them from it all and ignore looking to the one who really is over all world governments, God Almighty. And we do know this, that God would desire to use this worldwide plague to cause people to humble themselves and to pray to the one who's able to deliver them from all manner of evil and sickness and death. God, who, is, who patiently is waiting, not desiring that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance and faith in Jesus, his son. And that brings us to talk about him then. Jesus, the one that we remember on Monday, Thursday, as, as he gathered with his disciples in that upper room over 2,000 years ago and celebrated the Last Supper with them, we remember how he told them what was going to take place after that for him and for them in the next hours and days. And how he would be delivered to the chief priests and scribes who would then condemn him to death, how he'd be mocked and spit upon and scourged and killed and three days later rise again. And one of those disciples later summed up Jesus' work. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says this, The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. 
Well, that night in the upper room and then later in the garden, what was Jesus dealing with? The Heavenly Father's plan, his plan for advancement of his kingdom and for ultimate victory over the evil one. And it involved then Jesus, the God-man, experiencing betrayal and arrest and false charges and fake convictions and beatings and whippings and a criminal's death by crucifixion. That's what he told his disciples was ahead for him. And Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, wanted to stop his going to the cross and had said earlier, may it never happen to you. Later, um, out of desire to protect Jesus, Peter had drawn out his sword and slashed off the ear of a servant who had come to help in arresting him. And yet, what had Jesus told Peter? He'd said to him earlier, get behind me, who? Get behind me, Satan. For you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. And Jesus recognized then, you see, that Satan, the great deceiver, had blinded the eyes of Peter, getting him to think that the cross was really unnecessary. Later, Jesus told Peter, put your sword back in its place. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then shall the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen this way? Well, what was God's interest? What was his plan that the Old Testament scriptures predicted? Well, it was the way of the cross for Jesus, which result in then saving sinful mankind, delivering mankind from the evil one, opening up a way for all who would repent and believe in him to have forgiveness of their sins and enter Jesus' eternal kingdom. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. And so that night in the garden that we pause and remember tonight, Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Mary, struggled in prayer about that trial and suffering that he was about to go through. And then he pressed on to the cross, willingly giving himself to those that came to arrest him, willingly taking the torture at the hands of sinful men, and willing to take upon himself even the wrath of God, the judgment of God on our sins and the sins of the world. And then, as he hung there, dying for you and for me, he declared, it is finished. He had accomplished it. Ultimate deliverance from the evil one. Full forgiveness of all sins. Restoration of our relationship with the Heavenly Father. Help for us in the midst of the trials of this life and full deliverance from the trials when this life is over and we're welcomed into glory with the Lord. And after that seventh petition, then we conclude in the Lord's Prayer with these words, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And if you have your Bibles there and are looking at it, some of you might have noticed it in some translations of the Bible, this phrase there at the end is missing or in brackets with a note in the margin or something like that. And this is one of those very few verses in the Bible where some of the earliest manuscripts of the Bible didn't have those words, and later ones did. And now whether we conclude then about that, that they were added in very early years after the original, or that the copyist neglected to write them in early manuscript, it doesn't matter a whole lot in that those words clearly reflect what the rest of the Bible tells us about Almighty God. 
and they are a very appropriate way to end our prayer. We, we say then, for Lord, yours is the kingdom. Not the kingdoms of this earth like, like we think of here, but a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom of grace where God rules in the hearts and the lives of true believers in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And one day it will become a kingdom of glory in heaven where those who are saved are with Jesus in perfect happiness forever. So yours is the kingdom and the power. There, there's no power anywhere in the universe that can compare with the power of Almighty God. And yours is the glory. God, who is the creator and who is the sustainer and the redeemer, deserves all the honor and glory, not just today, but for how long? Forever and ever. Amen. And we're saying then, Lord, make that so. So let me just sum it up in what we learn relating to the seventh petition in this way. Satan, the evil one, desires to, to draw us, to distrust God, to get us to live in unrepentant sin until we draw our last breath so we'll be cast into hell with him for eternity. And if you're an unbeliever in Jesus Christ, then you are just where Satan wants you. But if you're a believer in Jesus, he's still actively seeking to harass you and draw you away from God. However, God is sovereign over Satan, and he limits his powers. And believers are to pray to God for protection from the evil one. And Jesus himself intercedes on behalf of saints for protection against the evil one. And God is ready and able and willing to protect from the evil one, and he does that. But our ultimate deliverance comes when the trials of this life are over and the Lord takes us from this world of sorrow to himself in heaven. Let us pray. Well, Lord God, we thank you that here you remind us that on the cross you finished the work, you accomplished victory over Satan, and there is full forgiveness from the guilt of all of our sins, and there is the gift of eternal life in heaven with you. And, and no matter how Satan harasses us here in this life, he cannot take that away from us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us, that we would live aware of his, his uh, tricks, his goals, but also aware of your power over him. And we would look to you each day for deliverance from the evil one for this life and eternity. Amen. This time, then, we're going to be singing a hymn together. And the hymn is something I came across in my devotions this last week. It's called Abide With Me, Fast Falls the Eventide. And I want you to notice in this hymn as we sing it, God's presence and his guidance and his peace in the midst of the trials of this life. And in that last verse, then also the ultimate deliverance from the evil one when we're at last home in glory. And as we sing through this song, I'd like you to just reflect on God's care for you in that way. And, and then as we come to the end of this song, we're going to just have some time for silent reflection. Often during um, Lent and Monday, Thursday, we, we have a celebration of communion, and we're not able to do that here tonight. But part of what we do as we gather for that is to take time to talk to the Lord and, and, and be honest with him about our sin. And so admit those things to God and trust in the power of his forgiveness and the promise that he has of deliverance from the evil one.